Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for joining this Friday's interview. So um, Matt and I have been in our stake since 2007, and there is a woman in our stake that I wish that I knew more and more about. And so today I'm getting that wish come true. (laughs) Um, Michelle Watts uh, is in my stake. We haven't been in the same ward, but as I view her from afar, she amazes me with all the things that she has accomplished and the life that she lives. And as I pray and try to think about people, Michelle's been on my list for quite a while. And I decided to just take the chance, give her a call and ask her if she would come on the things that I am aware of. I'm sure there's much more, but she has many stories in her life, but you know, she's a mother, she's a grandmother. She's been an educator. She served a mission, a service mission, a a full-time mission with her husband. She's also served she serves in the temple. I don't know if she does right now, but the, and Michelle, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, <laughs> but book club, uh, served in many leadership roles. She just is a woman of rich goodness. <laughs> so everybody welcome Michelle Watts to the podcast. Welcome Michelle. Thank you. And thank you for those nice comments. It's rather humbling. <laughs> <laughs> No, you are. You're fascinating to me. (laughs) Thank you. And I think that because most times when we're interacting, we're in meetings, uh, you know, state conferences, uh, stake events, whatever. So it's never like we can sit down and just talk. So this is a perfect opportunity and I'm grateful you're doing this. Um, To start off, I just want you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Like, where did you grow up? A little bit about your family. Um, some highlights from your life as a child that really impacted you. Okay. Um, well, I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada. I grew up in um, Southern Nevada. Um, my ancestors actually helped settle Southern Nevada and Southern Utah, early um, pioneers for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, I have a rich ancestry history in that area. Um But the reason we lived in Southern Nevada is because my father worked at the Nevada test site. And um, for many years, we lived in a little tiny town called Indian Springs, which is north of Las Vegas, closer to the Nevada test site. Um, But it was so small, there was no high school. So when my older brother was ready to go to high school, he would have had to ride a bus an hour each way. And my parents decided it would be better for my father to commute further to work than my brother and us kids eventually to commute to high school on a bus. So we moved to Las Vegas again. And that's where I spent my junior high and high school years. Um, Very, very wonderful growing up years. I have kind of a unique family. Um, My older brother is 21 months older than I am. And then I have a twin brother. And then 15 months later, we had identical twin brothers born. So we are two sets of twins in your family. Yes. And for my, yeah. And for my mother, five children in a little over three years, but it was a unique experience in that we're very close. We were close in age. So we had similar interests growing up and uh, have remained close throughout our life. 
do they still live in Las Vegas area? None of us live in Nevada anymore. Um, three of my brothers live in Utah and one lives in Arizona and I'm here in Oregon. Oregon. Okay. So I, I, I apologize for not, I think I know what it is, but when you say the Nevada test site, is that the nuclear, nuclear bomb test site that they were doing? Or am I wrong? No, that's correct. So that what did, what did your dad do for them? So my father was the first fire chief there and, um, and he was fire chief for 28 years. Um, and as a, some of his responsibilities included, of course, there were desert fires, brush fires, those kinds of things. Um, there was a two lane highway that went right up through Nevada and there were often accidents near there. So the fire, his fire department responded to those. And then he was responsible to be at all the um, atomic bomb tests and from the 50s to the 60s, um, they were above ground. And he um, was at every one of those tests. Um, also, um, as a child, my mom knew when the tests were. So we remember many times her waking us up. Usually it seemed like it was in the night. We would get up, go outside, face backwards, and cover our eyes until the um, atomic bomb was detonated. And then we would turn around and see the mushroom cloud. Wow. So, Did it scare you? Did that no, scare it you? wasn't scary to me at all. And at the time, everyone felt like it was safe, um, that they were out in the middle of nowhere. They always tested the wind conditions to make sure the fallout wouldn't harm anyone. Of course, at many years later, we learned it really wasn't all that safe. Um, but at the time, it wasn't scary to me, no. Did, I mean, I know this is kind of off, but I didn't know this. <laughs> Did Was there any fallout for your dad or you children growing up there? Have you, has there been anything that you've noticed or symptoms or anything of at all? Yeah, there has. Uh, we didn't get fallout where we lived. Unfortunately, that went to Southern Utah and those people living in Southern Utah, you may have heard the term were called downwinders. Um yeah. Many of those people had issues with cancer and certain types of cancer resulted if you applied in an automatic um, payment from the government. My father died at age 56 um, of cancer and we did receive a settlement, a pretty large settlement from the government, but it was sad because his life was worth so much more than any settlement. However, he and my mother were both very loyal to the program. They felt it was safe. I remember talking to him as a teenager about it, and he explained in great detail to me um, an incident um, that a man had some, they, they wore badges, they checked the radiation going into and out of the test site every day. And anyway, I don't need to go into all the details, but he and my mother felt very good about it. Um, we weren't sure my mother would even agree to request a settlement because they were very loyal to the program. Um, but unfortunately, my father, I think, was a victim of the Cold War. Um, so interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So what what did your mom stay at home with all of you? She did um, until we were probably in junior high. Um, and then, then she started working. Yeah. What was your family life like speaking spiritually? Cause you came from really strong pioneer 
roots, obviously. So what was it like for you growing up in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I actually didn't. Um, my my father was a convert. Um, his family, he's from Illinois, and his family were very staunch members of another faith um, and actually uh, had pretty negative feelings about our religion. Um, but he met some people when he was in a Marine in World War II and ended up joining the church, had a very strong testimony. My mother, um, even though she had ancestors that were very prominent in the church, her parents were not um, active as she was growing up, but she still was one of those, you read these people who have this inborn testimony and, and she did. Um, but when we were very little, we didn't attend church. For one thing, there was no church to go to where we lived in the little town of Indian Springs. So if we wanted to go to church, we had to drive an hour one way. And that was back when there was Sunday school in the morning and fact meeting in the afternoon. So it meant mostly in the summers and when the weather was good, if we did that, we would have a picnic lunch in a park and then go back to sacrament meeting. And it wasn't something my parents did very consistently. But if I could share this, um, this story to me about how we then became active is such an example of the effect we can have on other people and really not even understand how powerful it is. Um, there was a, a young family, Indian Springs was also was close to Nevada test site, but it was also at the time an air base. And there was a young airman, he was probably in his late 20s, early 30s, and his wife and a couple of little children. And they were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they wanted to attend church, but driving into Las Vegas for church with little children was a challenge. So he asked what he needed to do to get a branch established at Indian Springs. And they said, if you can find this many members that will be willing to go to church, then we'll let you have a branch. So he got a list of members, and my parents were on the list. And I remember he knocked at our door one day. I was with my mom. I was probably almost 12. And um, he's, he's in his air, airman uniform, and he said to my mom, are you LDS? And I was waiting for my mom to say no, no, because I was sure we weren't that, whatever that was. I didn't know <laughs> what it was. And um, and she said, yes, I was so surprised. But he explained to her that he wanted to start a branch and would our family be willing to attend and make that commitment? And they said yes. And we became active and um, in that little branch. And then, as I mentioned, we moved a year later into Las Vegas. And um, as a result of that experience, all of my brothers are active in the church. We've all served missions, married in the temple, children have been missionaries. Um, parent, we were sealed to our parents in the St. George Temple as teenagers. Um, and I had also another amazing woman. I was the only young woman in the branch and every week, I would walk over to her house and she would do young women's with me. So it's just so inspiring to see what effect we can have on lots of people. And we, we aren't even really that aware of it always. Did your parents ever reconnect with that airman? I don't think so. Wow. They did stay in touch. 
Yeah, the, the woman who was my young woman's leader, her husband was a branch president and they did stay in touch with them for, for many years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So when you were a teenager and getting ready to finish high school, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? I did. Um, I just, if I, I'll just divert and share this um, quick story about my experience as a, as a teenager with the church. So as I mentioned, I had been going to church for a year at Indian Springs, the only young woman. And we were moving to Las Vegas and we were going to be in our new ward for about four weeks before young women's camp in the summer. And my mom asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, yes. And she said, you'll be at church for four weeks. So you'll get to know some of the girls first. And I was kind of shy and I was a first year beehive. So um, it turned out the house that we was being built for us in Las Vegas wasn't completed yet. And we didn't get to attend church before young women's camp. And my mom asked me if I still wanted to go, and I said I did. So um, she dropped me off at the church with all these people that I didn't know, not a single soul, not one girl, not one leader. And I remember I sat in the car with two leaders in the front. I was in the middle, and there were some, I think, laurels in the back seat. And when you're a beehive, a laurel is like, wow, you know amazing and older and they were laughing and having fun. And I don't know why, but I got it in my head. They were laughing at me. You know how insecure you can be when you're that age. And I was just fighting the tears and wondering what I was doing and why was I doing this? But as we got to camp and we camped, it's a, we, we had this particular camp, we stayed in cabins and our cabin was our ward. And those young women were so kind to me and so good to me. And the leaders were so amazing. I knew they loved every one of us, even though they didn't know us all really well. I felt their love so, so um, it was overwhelming. And then all the um, weekly experiences, it was just an incredible week for me. Um, it was life-changing. But what was really life-changing was the uh, testimony meeting. Um, I had been going to church for a year and I believed it was true. But when I heard those young women sincerely share their testimonies that they knew it was true, I said to myself, I don't know it's true. I believe it's true, but I don't know it's true, and I want to know. So that next year, I spent the time um, reading the Book of Mormon and attending church and living the gospel as best I could. And, you know, we each get our testimonies in different ways. Um We've heard this before. For some, it's like going into a room and turning on the light, and there it is. For some, it's like a sunrise, and it's very gradual, and that's how it was with me. I can't pinpoint exactly when in those young women years I knew, but I knew. And so at that time, a lot of um, my friends in high school were planning careers. That was kind of the trendy thing to do is, here's the career I'm going to have. But I didn't. I knew I wanted to be a mom. And I wanted to be a wife and I wanted to go to college. It was important to me to go to college and I wanted to have a college degree, but I really wasn't that interested in having a career. So when you graduated, what did you work? Did you, what, cause when did you and Steven meet? So I did go to college right out of high school. I went to BYU um, and he, he was on his mission when I started BYU. I didn't obviously know him. So uh, toward halfway in March of my sophomore year is when we met and began dating. And then we married in September and he finished 
BYU um, that next year. So I only had at that time two and a half years of college, but finished my degree later here in Oregon. Here in Oregon. What was um, going to BYU like for you? It was amazing. I loved every minute of it. It was just so fun to be with so many youth. And there were a lot of LDS youth in Las Vegas, um, a large amount actually, but just to be with so many people that shared the same values and and just to have fun, live with roommates, um, be on my own. It was just, I loved my classes. I loved getting an education. Um, I loved it. So what was it about Stephen that you were drawn to? Because <laughs> I'm sure there were a lot of young, vibrant men there. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of young men, that's true. But a lot of young women too. Um, I just think I was drawn to, um, he was self-assured. Um, he was confident. Uh, he was fun to be with. We've always had fun being together. I appreciated his testimony, the fact that he was a return missionary. Um, and mostly I think we just enjoyed being together. Yeah. So what year did we, did you get married? Um, uh, 1970 just celebrated 53 years. Oh, wow. Okay. You get married and where do you go? Where, where does life take you? So our first uh, nine months were at BYU and this was during the Vietnam War, and he had a very low draft number. So his college deferment was up, and he was headed to Vietnam, something by then most people weren't very excited about. Um, but a miracle occurred, and he was he majored in law enforcement at BYU, and there was a, a National Guard unit in Salt Lake City that had an opening. It was very difficult to get into any National Guard units at the time because they weren't being deployed. They were staying here, but if you were drafted, you were being deployed. And so um, there was an opening. Someone told him about it. He was able to get in that National Guard unit, which was a huge blessing because it meant he wouldn't be going to Vietnam. Not that I don't appreciate all those who did go and what what they did for our country and the suffering they went through. But um, I was grateful he didn't have to go. So um, at this point, I'm ex we're expecting our first child in July. He left the first part of July to go to boot camp for three months, for four months. Oh, wow. And there was just no way I could go with him. Um, so I spent the first two months with my parents in Las Vegas and the next two months with his parents in Utah. Um, at that time, our first child was born a girl named Helena, and um, he didn't really get to meet her for three months. Oh, I wow. thought I just had the hardest, saddest life, but every time I told people in my parents' generation my sob story, they just gave me no sympathy because they've been <laughs> through so much more. <laughs> so when you would say, I'm so sad, Stephen hasn't seen her, they'd be like, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. So he sees her. What do you, what do you, do you have to stay then in Utah for some time while he's in the national guard? No, we could transfer. And so when he came home, he, he applied um, to work in Oregon for Multnomah County Sheriff's department, because it was one of the few departments on the West coast that required a four-year degree. And that was very appealing to him. 
and of course, the pay was better also. And he also applied with the FBI uh, to be a special agent. But in order to do that, you either had to have a law degree or work two years in Washington, D.C. as a clerk. And the pay was so low that um, I would have had to work also. But we decided to apply. So we both applied to the FBI to be clerks. And, and then he applied to Oregon. And uh, that was kind of fun because everyone we knew said, the FBI came and talk to me about you and because they did a thorough background investigation and so we didn't know for sure which we would rather do so we just said well whichever offer comes first that's the one we'll take well Stephen was at work um because he had some temporary work we were had our own little place there in Utah at this point and uh two phone calls came the same day both offering him a job the FBI and Multnomah County Sheriff's Department so it was a tough decision, but we decided to come here and, and we're really grateful we did. How we, did your parents feel about you fighting um, Oregon? <laughs> well, my parents were okay with it because by then my four brothers were kind of scattered to the wind. We were all kind of, none of us were settling in Las Vegas where they lived, but Stephen's um, parents, especially his mother, had grown very attached to our oldest daughter while we, I was living with them, and it was hard for them to see us come to Oregon. Were you scared at all, or were you just excited? Um, when Stephen first told me he wanted to come to Oregon, I was expecting so, you know, hormonal, but I just burst into tears. I just still considered Oregon like the untamed wilderness. <laughs> and um, and so I, I wasn't especially excited, but when we drove up here for the interview, so beautiful. We were just so amazed at the beauty. And uh, I, I, I felt really good about coming. We didn't know anyone in the entire state, but I felt really good about coming. So where did you first land? Are you still in the home that you moved to when you got here? We started out in Portland in an apartment, and then we moved to another um, another apartment and then we moved here. So we've been in this home about 49 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So Michelle, were you ever worried about him as a police officer? I really was um, worried about him, but not deeply worried. Um, I went to work with him as a ride along one New Year's Eve. It was quite an eventful oh, wow. night. Wow. After, after that, I said, I'm going to pretend like I don't know what you do for a living. <laughs> but I don't think I was really aware of the subconscious concern I had until he decided to retire. And it just felt like such a weight lifted off of me that he would no longer be working as a police officer. Can you share any um, spiritual experiences that you had in that process of him serving for the police department in Portland or Multnomah County? Um, he had several. I, I don't know that I um, had any relating to that. I did have um, a, a spiritual experience while he was serving in the bishopric um, and gone from home a lot with our little family. And I just felt like I just felt like I had a ministering angel assigned to my home to be with me when he was gone a lot. And when he was released, that ministering angel left and it was a, it was a tangible loss. 
How many children did you have in total? We have five. Okay, because I know Nola and Alicia, but okay. Yeah, we have four girls and a boy. Oh, okay. So you get here, you, he starts working as a police officer. Um, your mother, when do you decide that you want to go and finish your degree and become an educator? Well, I always knew I wanted to finish my degree, whether I used it as um, a way to earn income or not was another matter. But, uh, and we both had the goal that I would be a stay-at-home mom. Um, and I was until when our youngest daughter started kindergarten, my husband was working um, either graveyard or swing shift that way. He could, when he had court duty, he could earn a uh, time and a half. So he was basically working a job and a half. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I just kind of looked at things and he was gone. If he worked swing shift, he didn't see the kids often for four days. And I was home alone with no children because they were in school. And I said, this just doesn't seem quite right. I think it would be more important for me to... Um, go back, get my degree and teach school. I could still be home with the children in the summer and holidays. And that way you can work days and then we can have more family time together. So that's how that happened. That's how that happened. Okay. Um, I would love for you to tell some of the lessons you learned about being a mother, being, being at home. What are some things that you would share with us uh, with all women about your time as a mother? Well, I always appreciated the time. I I didn't ever regret the time or wished it would go by quickly. I loved being a mother, but any mother knows it's challenging. It's time consuming. Um, It takes a lot of patience. Um, I wished I would have had more patience. Uh, we always, I think, look back and say, oh, now I wish I would have been, you know, a more patient mom. But um, I love the the times we spend. I loved having traditions, um, making memories, working together, playing together, um, and just enjoying watching our children grow up and become the people they were becoming. When you would go through a challenge, what, what, how would you approach it? How would you handle it with a child or just with you in your season of life changing? How would you approach it? Well, several things helped me approach challenges. Of course, um, attending church, listening to conference talks um, and Relief Society lessons, always inspired me to try to do better, to be a better person. And, and that was that was a great help. Um, I know it's so funny, we do things we don't even always think about, but one of my daughters told me as an adult about a challenge that she was having that I was aware of and we were working on together as she was growing up. And she said, what helped me the most mom was you told me you were fasting and praying for me in this situation. I don't even remember doing that. So obviously, you know, just having the gospel there to to give us that opportunity to pray for guidance and um, and to get the, the support both from our friendships and the teachings. 
Yeah. That's wonderful. How long did it take you to finish your degree so that you could start teaching? Um, it took me, let's see. So I went to Mount Hood for four quarters and then I went to Portland state for, I think four more about uh, almost two years, I think just short of two years. Were you excited? Like when you did your student teaching, were you excited to get a job and start working in the schools or what were your thoughts about having that change in your life with your children and everything? Well, I wasn't sure I wanted to have a full-time teaching position. I had a good friend who was substituting and she kept busy substituting. And I thought that might be a nice option, but I finished my degree in December. So I had, it was, it's hard to get a job in the middle of the year. So I had the rest of that year to substitute. And um, I decided I really, I wanted to be able to have my own classroom and 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 have a job and, and work with the same students all the time. So then, yes, I was very excited. It was a nerve wracking. It was very competitive at the time to um, get a job. There were lots of applicants for each opening, but I felt very blessed to get a job um, the following September. So it was very exciting. And what grade did you teach? I started out teaching second grade and then I taught uh, a K-1-2 mixed age for, um, I think I did that for about five years and taught second grade for five years. And then I changed districts and then I taught first grade for 10 years. Wow. How did education change over those years from the, when you started, what did you see changing? Was it class sizes, um, children's behaviors, just curriculum? What was it that you saw? Um, I went into teaching at, I thought, a really wonderful time um, in in education, educational philosophy. Um, at the time, there wasn't, and I have to say I'm speaking from, I mean, I retired in 2010, so I don't know what's happening in education so much right now. But at the time, there was, um, even at the state, that's why I did a K-1-2, there was a lot of emphasis on um understanding children's development and assessing where they were in the developmental continuum and teaching them at their level, rather than teaching curriculum, rather than saying you're a third grader, so this is what you have to learn. This is where you are, and this is what I need to teach you next. And that's why the the state of Oregon was really looking at what they called ungraded primary, where children weren't in first, second, or third grade, they were just in a primary group so that if a child was maybe falling a little bit behind, it wasn't such a stigma because nobody cared. And that's the way it was with the K-1-2. The kids didn't really care or know who was the best reader, who was the worst reader, who knew it was good in math. They just, it was one family and everyone helped each other. And it was, it was a really exciting time for me in education. Um, so the focus was really on the child and their development and not the curriculum. And you need to know this at this age, not that definitely we need to have rigorous standards for children, of course, but so many children feel like failures because they aren't meeting a certain standard at a certain age. And, yeah. um, and that's kind of sad. So 
I think just as I was leaving education, there was there was more focus on standardized tests and and those type of things. But I taught younger kids, so I, I missed out on it. I, it wasn't a big emphasis in my my situation. Do you have any story about a student that you had that really affected your life or taught you something? Oh, I mean, I. I just, I, lo I loved the kids. I loved them. And it was so um, rewarding when I taught the K-1-2 because often I would have the same student for three years and then I would have their siblings and sometimes siblings in my room. Um, and so I got to know the families really well. And there were, um, there were some pretty special families that I was able to uh, interact with over a period of about five years, six years. And, and that was, that was very rewarding. Um, I don't know that any one student stands out. There was one boy. He just stole my heart as a kindergartner, um, little redheaded boy. Uh, we were at a high school, we were at an assembly. The high school was singing at Christmas time, Christmas carols. And he was sitting next to me and they were singing, um, uh, I don't even know the name of it, but the chorus is Glor Gloria, Gloria, you know, uh -huh, and, uh -huh. and he's sitting next to me and he looked at me and his eyes lit up and he said, they're singing about my mom because her name was Gloria. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, and, and he, he said to me, I'm having a birthday party and I'm inviting you. I mean, the kindergartners are just so excited and full of enthusiasm and happy to be at school and uninhibited. And I just, I had lots of really special, special students. Yeah. That I enjoyed. Cool. Was it hard to retire? No, I was ready to retire. Um, I was, I mean, it, I spent a lot of time when I was teaching, I told Stephen, this is my hobby besides my job then that's how I justify the extra hours I spend and the extra money I spend doing this job. Because if I couldn't have done it the way I wanted to, it wouldn't have been rewarding. So I was spending a lot of time um, outside of work working and, uh, and I was tired and I didn't want to be a cranky teacher and that wasn't fair to the kids. And I was, I was ready to retire. Did you know what you and Steven, because did it went, what year did he retire? So he retired and then went back to work for 10 years as a private contractor. And then he finished that probably three years before I retired from teaching. Okay. Was he the stake president during that time? He was. <laughs> okay. Fact, how I, did you, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just teaching one time a brand new year. And the children were sitting around the carpet near me and we were just talking and getting to know each other. And one little girl said, I know who you are. You're married to the president. <laughs> <laughs> and all the kids looked at her. <laughs> but but yeah, he was. How how was that time for you two and your children? Like what was that like? Him serving? Because it's what, 10 years, 11 years? Just, yeah, just about 10 years. Just about 10. Yeah, it's always just shy of 10 years, um, nine years and some months. Usually it's pretty typically always that way. Um, our children were already gone from home. Right. So, 
So it, it was it was good because he was gone a lot and I was doing my at home work a lot. So <laughs> it, we, it, it worked out well. Did you um, did you feel like you learned anything significant during that time when he was serving or was it just more of a support role for him? Like for your growth, what did you learn? Well, I really learned to appreciate his enthusiasm for serving. He had high council, he had state presidency and high council meetings really early on Sunday mornings. And he would get up and say, it's Sunday. And he was so excited. And, <laughs> and I just appreciated his enthusiasm. And I also appreciated getting to know the people he served with as state president, just such wonderful people. That, that was really pretty strengthening for me. And then, of course, as he served as stake president at the time, when um, general authorities were assigned to our stake, then they would stay with us. Oh, they would stay with you. Yeah. Yeah. And how was that? That was pretty amazing. We had some wonderful men stay with us, including Elder Cook and uh, President Nelson. And um, they Jay stayed at your house? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Please, Michelle, you have to tell us. <laughs> tell us about it. What's it like? Well, it's, it was very fun. Uh, we have a room we call the GA room now. <laughs> General authority room. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why, but we name our rooms. One bedroom is the garden room and that room is the GA room. But um, it, it was, it was you know, a little nerve wracking. Um, we did try to make that room um, very nice for them. So they would be comfortable staying there. Uh, but as I said, our children were all gone from home and there was a bathroom down by that bedroom that they had for their own use. And then we put a desk in there if they needed to ride. And then we had a, a nice uh, piece of furniture with drawers in it and a TV. Not that they ever had time to use that. They were always very busy when they came. They had lots of assignments to do besides speak at our state conference. But um, I remember when President Nelson came we didn't have our stake center yet. So we were meeting at the Sandy building for the adult Saturday evening session. And my husband asked our son to come and just kind of walk the halls and make sure they were secure and there was, it was safe. And, and so after that evening meeting, I went down in the hall to talk to our son and I assumed my husband would come and get us and we would leave. I had come separately. He had taken president Nelson to the meeting. So they went home. So he took President Nelson down to the room he was going to stay in, and President Nelson said, I can't take your bedroom. And he said, this isn't our bedroom. This is this is the room for you. And and Stephen actually had to take him to our bedroom and show him our clothes and show him <laughs> this is our bedroom and that's for you. But he was he was very, um, very kind. Uh, he he uh, came on Saturday and spent some time with us, too. And and I don't know if everyone knows this, but he was, we have an um, pump organ, an antique pump organ in our living room. And we were sitting in the living room talking and he looked at it and he said, does that work? And we said, yeah. And he said, oh, do you play it? And we said, no, we really don't. Our kids took music lessons, but we're, we don't play. And he said, can I? And we said, of course. And he sat at the pump organ and he's a very talented musician, um, very talented uh, pianist. And um, anyway, that was, that was really fun. Do you remember anything else from his visit? I remember that he didn't eat very much of the breakfast I made. <laughs> <laughs> Why I, not? 
I think he's just very heart conscious at, at and health conscious, even at that age. I think I had some. But that I don't think like he didn't have any bacon or sausage. You know what I I'm uh, he 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 ate a very limited breakfast and very healthy choices. <laughs> we see why he's as healthy as he is today. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Okay, so who else stayed? Elder Cook? Yeah, Elder Cook. He was wonderful. We had um, J.E. Jensen was a 70. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was he was very nice and and had been involved in publishing the insight. So he was very interested in books and reading. He wanted to look at my book collection, those kinds of things. Um, and uh, we had then besides that, we had several regional um, authorities visit. And to tell you the truth, their names escape me. <laughs> That's okay. That's amazing. What a fun memory. Did you have the kids that were local come over and meet them? Like, or was that kind of, meh? no, we were, we did with elder Nelson for some reason. I don't know why with the others it just it didn't work out, but he had agreed that, um, Stephen's two counselors, uh, brother Dickinson and, um, Chrisman. Chrisman Lewis could come over to our house with their families and our family could come. And he was very gracious and visited with our families and let us take pictures. And that, that was really nice. Oh, that's so special. Yeah. Okay. So when you both decide to retire, do you know what you want to do? Or are you kind of just taking a break and trying to figure that out? No, we knew we had ever since we were married, Stephen served a full-time mission, of course, as a young man, but I didn't serve a mission and I really wanted to. And we had talked about ever since we were married that when we retired, we would serve a mission. So we knew as soon as we retired, we would serve a mission. Okay. So how did that process share with us how that all came to be? Well, I retired in um, the spring of 2010 my years right no 2009 in the spring of 2009 and we were going to turn in paperwork to be eligible to leave um in the next month if we were called in the meantime one of my daughters was kind enough and this is very touching to me to nominate me to be mother of the year for oregon <laughs> and so um i was one of the candidates and they called me up and said uh we see on your paperwork you plan to serve a mission but if you're um if you're elected mother of the year will you postpone your mission and i said i'm gonna have to think about that one so we talked it over and Stephen said well if you are that will be another way to share the gospel and then we can go on our mission after and so i was elected mother of the year and so we postponed our mission until january of 2010 but that was another, um, you know, throughout my life, I've seen so many testimonies that our Heavenly Father cares about each of us personally and and directs our lives. And we were just going to put on our mission papers that we would serve wherever we were needed. And Paul and Nancy Hansen had been to Palmyra, New York, to visit and while they were there, they ran into um, Brother Weston, who had been a mission president here, and we knew him well from 
Stephen Serena, stake president. And he said, what are the Watsons up to? And Paul and Nancy said, they're getting ready to serve a mission. And he said, they are. Tell them to come here. I want them to come here and serve in the historic sites with me. And he gave him uh, a business card. So they came home and told us that. So we said, yeah, okay. And we put the card away and we said, we're going to go wherever we need to, you know. So then we were coming home from October General Conference and um, we met Gary and this is his, I don't know why, but I can't remember his last name, but he was a regional authority who had stayed with us uh, during general, during, uh, for, as a state conference one time. And we saw him at the airport. We were all coming back to Oregon. He said, hi, what are you up to? And we said, oh, we're getting ready to go on a mission. And he said, oh, where are you going? We said, we don't know, we'll just go wherever. And he said, if you have somewhere you want to go, you should request it. The missionary department wants senior missionaries to be happy in their mission. So when they come back home, they will get other people enthused about serving a mission. And then we had one other incident, which now escapes my memory, but three times we were kind of guided to the fact that it would be okay to request. So we decided to request. So we called President Weston and we said, um, we talked to Hanson. They said, you want us to come there to serve uh, we were interested in doing that. He said, okay, as soon as you fill out your paperwork, um, call me and I'll flag, I'll have him flag your application. So that's how we ended up in Palmyra. Oh my gosh. Okay. I want to, I want to hear about Palmyra, but I also don't want to miss you were nominated mother of the year. <laughs> I want to, I totally want you to tell all about Palmyra, but what did that mean? What did that require of you? So there was quite a lengthy application, and um, and then after the application was filled out, and all my children also had to write a little um, excerpt, and I think I had to have some other people write some. It was quite a application process. Um, then they were going to interview each of the applicants, but I don't remember if something happened so that Someone got sick. I don't know. We didn't end up having in-person interviews. So they mainly just used our applications. And then there was a, a gala event where we all went and they introduced all of us. And then there was a committee that that selected the person that was mother of the year. And uh, it's just, I think, I mean, how do you select a mother of the year? Who's the mother of the year? That's just <laughs> so abstract. But what was Wonderful is there were some wonderful people I got to meet that year and work with wonderful mothers and also um, just, as I mentioned before, so touched that my daughter would want to nominate me for that. Yeah. And and so there were speeches. We had to give speeches. We went to the national convention, which luckily for me was in Portland because I was still working. And as a teacher, it's hard to get time off during the school year. So um we went to the national convention, met some other just amazing, wonderful people. Wow. Okay. So you guys get called to Palmyra. What, how long did you want to go? Was it 12 months? Was it 18 months? Was it two years? I don't remember. We we requested 18 months and that's what we served. Okay. And what were your responsibilities there? So our major first responsibility was to serve in the historic sites. So we served at the um, Book of Mormon publication site called the Grandin Building, which is downtown Palmyra. We served at the Joseph Smith Visitor Center and the two buildings, the little home and the larger home that they um, 
lived in and the sacred grove was connected with that. And we served at the Hillcomore Visitor Center. And then we served in Fayette, New York at the Peter Whitmer Farm. So we, other senior missionaries, and then always we had sister missionaries with us too, rotated serving at those events, those sites during the week we were assigned each week. We had a, 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 sh a shift and a, an assignment there. Additionally, we served in wards, um, kind of more as proselyting missionaries. There were too many senior missionaries for all of us to attend Palmyra. So we served in Rochester, New York, and the bishop there assigned us 12 people to um, fellowship and work with. And we had some wonderful experiences with those people. Um, we also, when we were at home in our apartment and we were going to be there for a while, we could connect with, this is when we had landlines for our telephones and we could connect with Salt Lake City and be a call center for people who had pass along cards. And that was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, we do so much with technology today, but there are still those people who don't have that much access to technology. And those pass along cards were so successful with those people. And we had a series of questions we would ask them and it was just so uplifting to listen to them. And almost always they wanted to have the scriptures of the Book of Mormon brought to them. One man told me, I wanna tell you how I got this card. I was at a soup kitchen and somebody handed me this card and it showed Jesus Christ coming out of the tomb. And I said, that's what it's all about. That's what matters that he was resurrected, not that he was on the cross. I said to everyone in the room, this is what matters. I'm calling this number. And then he called and he said, I'm going to give the card back to the to the man tomorrow. And I said, I don't think you need to. I don't think you yeah. expect the fact. But just, I, I had so many amazing stories. People told me about how they received these pass along cards. And, and, uh, and then my husband and I were also assigned to work with the pageant. Um, we worked with the sister missionaries to train them and then they would train the pageant cast members to go out in their costumes and talk to the crowd and and solicit referrals and we would get thousands of referrals from the pageant wow so why did you feel um you were moving around a lot it sounds like i mean you were go 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 does that is that accurate um, we were pretty busy. We, we were able to do a little sightseeing also. And what, what other experiences with visitors that came on tours with you or pass along cards? Can you share? Cause I think people love to hear like stories like that gentleman about finding the pass along with the savior coming, standing by the tomb. So are there any other experiences that you can recall while you were out on tours or helping people so many wonderful amazing experiences um because we would we would hear most of the people who came were members of the church but we would hear their testimonies and how they became involved in the church and their conversion stories and 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 it was incredible i'll just share one there's so many it's hard to decide but I had a family, they had some young men and a, a young woman and the young woman was actually attending um some musical school in New York City, but the family came to Palmyra together to go through the sites. And um, we were, I think, in the little Joseph Smith log home, the little log home he left from to go into the sacred grove to uh, pray about what church he should join. So it's just a little tiny log home. And 
the second floor is the same airspace that Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith. It's not the same log home as reconstructed, but they went to great effort to find out that this is where this log home was originally. So it was the same airspace and up on that second floor where the boys slept when Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith. It's just very sacred, strong spirit there. And the mother told this story to, to us that, that all the family was there about how um, she had, I think she wanted, she was sick. So the little girl was born, but the boys weren't yet. The boys were twins and she was sick and and she went to the doctor and she brought her daughter with her and they were trying to figure out what was wrong with her. And the doctor said, you're pregnant. That's what's wrong. <laughs> and they, they didn't think they could have any more children. And she just burst into tears. So then her daughter burst into tears and her daughter said, mom, I'm so sorry, but I've been praying really hard that we could have more kids. And she thought that she, her mother was unhappy because she was crying. She, she thought her mother was unhappy because she was pregnant. And those twin boys were born in that, and that little girl prayed him here. So it was just really sweet to hear that story and how close they all were. And then we went down to the, um, the frame home, the bigger home that the Smith family lived in when Joseph Smith actually received the plates. And this girl that was attending um, music school that um, had prayed the little brothers thing, um, Joseph Smith's first vision, if you can imagine, that was just such an amazing experience to hear her sing in that home. Wow. Okay, tell more, Michelle. <laughs> you got to tell more. Have more, please. <laughs> um, so what the most common question asked in that little log home on the second floor, because when you go there, there's a little bedroom with a bed where the sisters slept. And then there's another bedroom with two beds where the brothers slept and they shared the beds. And so everyone always says, but Joseph Smith's saw Moroni here, why didn't all the brothers see Moroni too? Because they're all sleeping. Because we always see that picture that shows Joseph Smith by himself in a bed with Angel Moroni. Right. But that isn't how it was. They were all sleeping in the same room when Angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith. And we said, we don't know the answer to that. But, and then we'll, you know, list, you know, what some possibilities were. Um, like when Stephen was stoned and he saw Jesus and and all the people around didn't. Um, th there could be, you know, just lots of ex explanations why that happened. And I had a group of women and as I was, well, two women and, and their husbands, actually. And I, we were talking and discussing that. And I said, you know, sometimes see, people see angels and others don't. I don't know if you're familiar with the Cokeville story in Cokeville, Wyoming, but um, they said, we know exactly what you mean. We were teachers in Cokeville, Wyoming, when uh, that school was taken by hostages and in fact, one of them made me come up to the chalkboard and I was sure he was gonna shoot me. And all the children were in one room. And she said, later we learned that those children saw angels, but we didn't see angels. We were in the same room with them and they saw angels and the angels comforted them and told them to go close to the window so that when the bomb went off, they could get out quickly. And they said, but we didn't see angels. So we understand how Joseph Smith could see an angel, but his brothers didn't. 
So that was a wonderful experience too. Oh, okay. Anything else? <laughs> well, one my husband loves to share. Um, we had a, a Catholic, I, I'm sorry, I should know the terminology, but he was um, a father, a priest. I'm not sure. He was in charge of training new um, men who came to and were wanting to be um, priests. And he would bring them to the sacred grove. And he came to the visitor center and my husband was the one doing the tour and he would talk to him and, and the the man, he would talk to him a little bit and Stephen offered to take him to the log. Usually we typically would talk a little bit in the visitor center and then we took people to the log home and then to the frame home and then they went to the sacred grove on their own. And um, Stephen said, can I take you to the log home or frame home? He said, no. He said, I just want to take these um, men to the sacred grove. He said, you wouldn't have to be spiritually dead not to feel the spirit and know that an amazing event happened there. Wow. Yeah. And he was a Catholic father or priest. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. Come on. Tell a couple <laughs> more, please. <laughs> Cause my daughter just went on a church history tour with a group of youth, primarily youth, but also about 20 adults, 30, 40 youth. And there were, it was very interesting to me. Her heart was most touched at the grave stones of some infants that they went to. And then also Carthage gel. And those were the moments that really like touched her. I mean, other areas were very touching in the sense of she felt, you know, the spirit, but those two experiences really spoke to her. So when you were there, did you, I mean, I know you were serving and you were probably just doing the day-to-day -day thing, but were there moments where you just saw a glimpse into heaven and just in the feelings you had? Well, it certainly um, confirmed and strengthened our testimony of Joseph Smith and his family and the, the support they provided for him. But the one thing we always said, and I still say, um, is there are no coincidences. And just learning the details of how the Smith family arrived in Palmyra, where the plates were, um, so many details about their lives. Uh, there, there were no coincidences. They. God is in our lives. He's in the details of our lives. I was just looking at my blog. While we were there, I forgot to mention too, we were called to be internet missionaries. The Palmyra mission was the first mission to have internet missionaries in the church. Until then, um, missionaries hadn't been using technology and internet um, like they do now. And so they called some young missionaries some elders and some sisters and about three couples to pilot this internet missionary program. And they asked us to have blogs. And so um, I had a blog and I was just looking at it recently. And I was reading my thoughts about the fact that how much I love Christmas and always have, but when we, and we were going to be in Palmyra for one Christmas and our little car, we drove to our mission and it was packed totally. We couldn't fit anything else in, so there was no room for any Christmas decorations. And 
there was no need to buy any Christmas decorations because how would we get them home, right? But just so many tender mercies um, and um, blessings to, made me aware, Heavenly Father is mindful of me. A missionary couple gave us an artificial Christmas tree and decorations. Someone else gave us a wreath um, that we decorated all the sites for Christmas, but missionaries didn't do it. The The facilities group did. And yeah, it turned out that I was at three different sites and got to help decorate those sites. It was just um, really confirmed to me that Heavenly Father is aware of us and our desires and blesses us. Yeah. The things that we love, he loves too. That's wonderful. Okay. You come home from your mission. Was it hard to come home or were you ready? No, we were ready. We were ready to come home. 18 months was a great amount of time. Really pretty perfect. We were there for two pageants and that was really amazing. Um, the other thing we did. So the first half of our mission, the first nine months, we lived in a missionary apartment and the backyard was a sacred grove. And then wow. the second um, nine months, we lived um, on the Hill Camor. My husband was called to be the assistant director to the historic sites. The, besides having a mission president, the historic sites had a missionary couple. The brother was the uh, director of the historic sites. So he was in charge of all the scheduling, just making sure everything was going fine. And then my husband was called to be assistant director and I was the secretary to the director. So we moved to the Hillcomore. There are two missionary apartments um, in the Hillcomore Visitor Center. So we moved into that one. So the second half of our mission, we lived on the Hillcomore. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> that, that was really amazing. And it was a very busy time. And we left right after the, the pageant in July. Um, but we were ready to come home and meet our new, we had two grandchildren born. Uh, while we were on our mission. And the wonderful thing about it is we had extra apartments and um, missionaries were encouraged to have their families come visit. So they were able to bring our little grandchildren out to meet us and there were apartments for them to stay in. So that was nice, but we were ready to go home. What were your plans when you got home? What did you and Stephen want to do? Well, I mean, I don't think we had any formal plans at the time. I've always had lots of hobbies I'm interested in, and I was looking forward to having time to spend time on my hobbies that I hadn't much time before this in my life. Um, so, and then we we always, of course, love serving in the church. We love to, one plan was to travel. We love to travel, and and uh, we hadn't been able to travel a lot. We travel some, but not a lot prior to our retirement. So those were kind of the things we had in mind. When did you start to serve at the temple? Well, we were serving at the temple before our mission as ordinance workers. And then in Palmyra, with permission, you could serve in the Palmyra temple. So we served in the Palmyra temple one night a week. Um, and then when we got home, we were public affairs directors for the state for a short while. And then we were called to be BYU-Idaho Pathway missionaries. And us and another couple were the first pathway missionaries in the state of Oregon, and I think the state of Washington. And it was early, early on in the pathway program. And, and so we were kind of helping get that going. And we served for two years as regular BYU pathway missionaries. And then they asked us to extend as they called us zone leaders. But I mean, what we did then is we brought on board 
um, I'm trying to remember, but about 36 more missionaries in Oregon and Washington. And so we were responsible to train them and get their groups going, help them. And we did that for two more years. And shortly after we were released from that mission, Stephen was called to be in the temple presidents and uh, counselor in the temple presidency. So then we did that for three years. Go, 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 go. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, are you still serving at the temple now? My husband serves Wednesday nights as a sealer and I serve in the sealing offices. It's called sealing office coordinator, but I do that every three weeks. He serves every week. Okay. So Michelle, if you look back, I mean, look at all you've done. What a life. What a beautiful, beautiful life. What would you say to people where you're at in your life, what you've experienced? What would you, what would be words of wisdom that you would give to, to those listening? Well, I think um, first and foremost, of course, is just, just keep your relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Just Stay strong in the gospel um, because the blessings for that are so rich and abundant and irreplaceable. And um, cherish your relationships with your family, especially. Those are such special times. Um, and with friends uh, also and you know, it's, it's worth the investment in the time to, to have those relationships and just find joy in what, what you're doing and appreciate the opportunities you have and, and take advantage of them. Um, okay. Two more things. And then <laughs> I'll let say goodbye. If you have time to do something by yourself, what do you want to do? I, well, actually I have three, cause I know you are love reading. And so I know you would probably read a book, I'm assuming, but so tell me what are some other things that if you just had, if someone said you have, you know, five, six hours to do this or that, what would you choose? Well, I, I love photography and I love doing photo editing and I would work, work on that. Um, during COVID, I took an online photo editing class that was like graduate level course and I was the kindergartner in the class but <laughs> but I learned a lot of things and I still want to review those lessons and and uh and learn there's still so much more I can learn there I love to watercolor and um I would spend some time doing watercoloring I'm very amateur at it but I, it brings me a lot of joy um as you said reading um if I'm just by myself, those are the things I would do. If I get to bring my husband, then I would travel too. <laughs> you would travel. I um, love to travel. Where do you, where are some places that you guys have gone? Well, we love the national parks and we've been to lots and lots of them. Um, we've been, of course, to Hawaii. I wasn't really ever excited about going to Hawaii, but after I went there, I said, oh my gosh, I could just live here. It's amazing. <laughs> um we were we were able to go to Australia, New Zealand, Ireland. Um, we were able to go to the Rome uh, Temple Open House. It's just another little blessing because we were serving in the temple. And when you serve in the temple, you don't even get a day off to be sick. You have to be there. You cannot not be there. 
because if you're not there, the other two in the presidency have to cover. And it's it's a big job being there a third of the time, let alone covering for someone who isn't there. So it turned out that the Rome Temple open house was during a closure of our temple. So we were able to go to that and then spend, um, we spent almost two weeks traveling in Italy with a group. Uh, we went then, one of the things we've always wanted to do, when we were in Palmyra, we um, have a beautiful Christus statue there. And we always talked about the history of the Christus statue, the the artist and um, what it all means. And so we always wanted to see the original. So we were able to go um, to Denmark, to Copenhagen and see the original Christus statue and the 12 apostles and then take a, um, see the tulip bulbs in um, Amsterdam and take a Rhine River cruise. And then we spent a week in England and, and uh, did those, are, those are some of the things with some of the, we've been to New York a few times and just, you know, some of the typical things people do. Traveling. Okay. Michelle, um, will you quickly tell us the history of the Christus? I, I mean, I know I've read when I've gone, when I have gone to Salt Lake, but I don't remember. So Bertal, Bertel Trevalson was um, a famous sculpture at the time. And he actually sculpted it. Interestingly enough, he finished it, I think, in 1829 or somewhere right in there, right at the same time the church was being organized. Um, he was commissioned by this little church in Copenhagen, Denmark, to carve out of marble, out of Carrara marble. It's the same marble pit that um, Michelangelo carved um, his carvings from. But anyway, he carved the Christus, he was commissioned to carve the Christus and the 12 apostles. And this church has little al alcoves and they wanted to put the uh, 12 apostles deep in these alcoves and he wanted them to be prominent. So he carved them bigger so they wouldn't fit in the alcoves. <laughs> and um, it took him several years uh, to do it. But um, the reason we use it so much in the church is because a general authority, and I think it was LeGrand Richards, but I'm not sure. Uh, had seen the Christus statue and anyway, got permission to make some replicas. So there was one in Los Angeles and one in at the World's Fair in New York, which I think ended up coming to Salt Lake City to the Visitor Center there. And then, of course, as you know, they're used many, many places now. The one thing that's cool about the Rome Temple is they got permission to digitally copy the original Christus and 12 Apostles. They got the marble from the Carrara Marble Pit. And they um, have replicas of all 12 apostles in the Christus in Rome at the visitor center at the, the temple there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it's just so tender when you were in the visitor center and, and at Hillcomore because we would talk about the prince in his hands and in his feet. And um, often I would read a scripture. Um, I remember one time I was giving a tour and um, a lady said, I told my my kids that Christ has your picture on his refrigerator. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of a way to personalize it. But really, the scriptures personalize it so much better because he says, I have graven you on my heart and in my hands and in my feet. And that, that's what he shows, how he shows us how much he loves us through that atoning sacrifice. Yeah. Well, Michelle, I'm so thankful for this time with you. I've, like I said, I've always really admired you and, and looked to you as a, 
a woman of great worth. <laughs> we all are of great worth, but just, I've just really admired you and I'm grateful that you've given me this time. And my last question that I ask everybody that I interview is how do you personally seek light? I think the best way I seek light is through my personal scripture study and prayer. And um, I just, so when I'm so, when I'm diligent about doing that and um, sincere about it and put the time and effort in, even though there are challenges in all of our lives, and believe me, I have my own challenges in my own life, I, I see that light that helps me manage those challenges um, and the happy times and hopefully share that light a little bit with other people too. And I just want to say, Beth, thank you for also being such a wonderful example. Um, and don't cut this part out. <laughs> this is our Sacred Leaf Society president. I just thought you were a shining example of light and for doing this podcast to lift other people up. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for um, being willing to just share so many stories. I mean, you, I, I hope you're, are you writing a book for your children to have of you and your posterity? <laughs> Little bits at a time, but not as much as I should be. Oh, you have to, you and Stephen need to do that. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.